Welcome to another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon. Theologian. And we're here for another Monday Afternoon. So it is another Monday afternoon. Hey, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I am fabulous. Good. You're looking fabulous. Yeah, it's because I've got my Hawaiian shirt on. Right on. Although I'm in Colorado, which is a kind of the antithesis of Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii is a mindset, so they say. That's what they say. Yeah. I don't know who they are, but they say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all those people we quote when we need to make up something. And we make up a lot. Yes, we do. Because like <laughs> that one guy who said, 85% of all quotations are made up on the spot. Including this one. <laughs> Including this one. <laughs> so let me ask you, after coming back from a rather heavy topic, which was actually kind of intriguing to talk about last week, related to sin, we're actually going to dive into a little bit more related to that topic, but it's a little different this week. So help fill us in on what it is we're looking at this Monday. So the question we have today as opposed to the big, big picture that we looked at. It's, it's a, a narrower picture, but it's how does sin affect my life? Mm. And obviously there's going to be a difference depending on where we are in our spiritual relationships. So we're going to look into that in some detail. I hope we will, because I remember meeting one guy who took me aback a bit because he had believed that because he was saved— he was no longer able to commit sin. Hmm. And I thought, well, if sin never affects your life, and if you can do anything you want and believe that's not sin, I think that's a problem. <laughs> I think so, too. So why don't we take just a second and kind of back up a little bit to what we talked about last time. And one of the key points that we looked at was that sin isn't a created thing. Sin is not a created thing. As you mentioned, Eve wasn't in the garden and saw a little pile of sin raked up underneath the bush where she could go grab some. Mm -hmm. But like evil is the absence of good or the absence of God, mm -hmm. sin is the absence of obedience. Sin is the absence of obedience. And it's a result of a choice that we make as an individual. Because... God never wanted us to uh, robotically follow everything that he wanted us to do. That's not the relationship that he wanted with his children. Mm -hmm. He wanted his children to love him back. And to stay within the guidelines is how the love is returned. I started thinking about that as we started looking through some of the little topics that we wanted to hit to go a little deeper about how sin does affect our lives. And I remember something that happened back when my son, he's our middle child, was in about the fifth grade. I think it was the fifth grade. Uh, there was a school cop. That's kind of what we called him. And he would hang around with the school kids. And he was there to help teach them how not to do drugs and all this kind of stuff. But what I noticed happening with some of my son and his friends, they started to like this cop because they saw him as a human being. The cop was putting a face on authority, and it was a good face. It was somebody they respected. It was somebody who would 
do things with them in a way that made them feel like this guy genuinely cares about me. And so there was a shift in attitude into the reason for obeying the law or obeying the rules. You still need to obey the rules. I mean, those rules are still there for us, but they started doing it not because of fear of punishment, not because they saw all cops as bad, but because they actually saw this one cop as good. And he thought, I don't want to disappoint my friend. I want him to admire me the way I admire him. And it becomes, in a sense, a love relationship. It was a pure kind of love. It was a platonic love, obviously. But that was a shift, not so much in the law as it was in the attitude toward obedience. And he didn't feel like he was being obedient as much as he was just liking this guy back. So I think that serves as a little bit of a framework for us because obedience is always one of those words that people kind of recoil from. They go, ooh, obedience. I don't like that word. You have to obey. But if we stop thinking about it in terms of being obedient and we start thinking about it like I'm just going to care about this person enough to do what I know they would be impressed by because I want him to like me the way I like him, it changes everything. And it's the shift. It's that conversion of my attitude more than it's the conversion of the law itself. One other thing we saw last time, and it was a word that both you and I had just recently come across, and I think it may have been new to many of the listeners. We know that God is omnibenevolent. Omnibenevolent. And that means he only wants the best for his children all the time. Because he is good, he's all good, and he's always good. Omnibenevolent. But when we step out of that relationship, we choose to be in opposition to his best, then there are consequences. When we step outside of those boundaries, this is assuming that we have placed our trust in him, then we harm the closeness of that relationship. It doesn't destroy the relationship, it just changes it. And we hear the church phrase, out of fellowship, you know, where we're not quite in agreement. It's not the same as lost for eternity, but if we never place our trust in God, and if we continue to live outside his boundaries, then the most severe of the consequences will be eternal separation from him. We want to make sure that that's not something that happens because at some point I know we're going to talk about the two different places where people can go, one of which is very good, one of which is pretty nasty. So eternal separation from him is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to the garden for a second. Adam and Eve wandering around the garden. Eve gets the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She eats some. Adam eats some. That really broke the relationship that they had with God. And as a result, it also broke the world. So when we look at that scene that we comically played out last time, it was actually Satan who was tempting Eve. And the idea was that she could become like God by eating that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, Eve broke the one commandment. There was yeah. only one at that point. You had one job, Eve. <laughs> Just one job. And that changed everything. So before that happened, both Eve and Adam were able to walk in the garden with perfect fellowship with God. They ate from the abundance of the garden with little effort. I, I can see them. They're wandering around. Oh, look, here's some turnips. They just pull them right up. I, I think the soil was like that rich stuff, you know, all that topsoil that you see in the, in the farming films that's just rich and, and soft, and they're planting with ease. 
or they're wandering around, they pull a few blueberries off the bush, or they, you know, find a banana tree and pull off the perfect ripe banana. It was pretty easy for them to, to hang out there and, and have what they needed. Mm -hmm. But after the fall, things were immediately different. Yeah. You know, they knew their relationship, their fellowship with God was broken. They were ashamed to be naked and they had to leave the garden. They were no longer holy and they couldn't stay in the presence of God's holiness. So then there were some reminders that were given to us that things were different. Number one. Work became a struggle. You know, it talks about the toil will bring the sweat of your brow. Farming became more difficult. The ground became harder to till. This was the first indication that the earth was physically broken. Number two. Childbirth became more painful. Number three. And the rules of life became much more restrictive, as we'll see in just a second. It wasn't just one commandment anymore, but the bigger one. Number four. The biggest one was they were no longer able to eat from the tree of life and they would physically die. A biggie. That's a biggie. Yeah, death entered the picture. Mm -hmm. And I, I noticed that when you started referencing all the things that went through in the garden once sin entered that picture, that there was shame for the first time yeah. because they were ashamed, even though they were naked before, but they became aware of their nakedness. Suddenly there was something different about it. It was shame. It's kind of like when... A kid does something and he knows that it's wrong and he finds it difficult to look at his parents' eyes. <laughs> There's something about, I don't want them to see that because if they see it, they're going to look right into my soul and they're going to know I did something wrong. So it was that awareness of doing something wrong and something changes again in our attitude toward God once sin has entered the picture. And so attitude continues to crop up as being so important all through Jesus' teaching in the New Testament about the kingdom of God, too. But in order to get there, you've painted a really good picture about this whole experience in the garden. Everything changed because of sin. Then we need to see that somehow the law plays into the overall progression of events through the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. We've got this patriarch, Moses. Everybody's seen the Moses movies. We know a bit about him, hopefully. But he was given the Ten Commandments up there on Mount Sinai. And then, of course, there were many other commandments given for the purpose of trying to maintain this group of people that became known as the Israelites later. They were the Jews, God's chosen people. They had lots of different commandments there were Levitical laws. There were some things that were just supposed to make community living better and to make health better for them. But the basic 10 were the ones on the tablets from Mount Sinai. I don't know about you. Most of us can't go for a full day without breaking one of those things. Isn't that right? <laughs> I mean, just take the first one, for example. What are other gods? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, myself comes into play a lot. I tend to put myself on the pedestal. So I try to be my own God. Money, there's a pursuit of money on the part of many people that that breaks one of the commandments. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really big one in, in our uh, society today, especially in America. Yeah, fame, power, position, money can be attached to those things as well. Yeah. <laughs> people are trying to exalt themselves because of their fame. Their, they want everybody to know them more or to have more likes on their social media or whatever. Power and position, we see people vying for that. Sometimes they'll trample on other people to get to their position. A lot of distractions. 
there's a ton of distractions in our life that take God off the throne for us. And we exalt things that are little tiny and make them much bigger than they should be. And that shrinks God in our minds. Career, uh, the next promotion, the next raise, the next step on the career ladder. Maybe trying to make myself look good at the expense of a coworker. Maybe failing to give that other person credit for something that they did that was good because we want to be the one that, even if it's mistakenly attributed to us and we don't correct the mistake, there are so many things that we can do that keep us from really being in that complete fellowship with God and we put other gods before us. Even a spouse, something as good as being married to a wonderful person, if we elevate a relationship, even if it's a good one, a spouse, our children, all their activities, if we elevate that to the point that we're pushing God out into the margins, then we're pushing God out. Hobbies can be that. We can become obsessive about certain things. And they're all good things. Most of the things I've mentioned can be good things. But when they're taken to an extreme, when we become obsessive over them, then we push God out of those things. Even such a good thing as a religion. Because a modern-day Pharisee is still a Pharisee. (laughs) Isn't that the truth? I'm sure that somewhere along the line, you've met somebody who says, I don't sin. I've never sinned. You know, I, and it could be that they're a sociopath and they don't have a conscience, and so therefore they don't feel like they've done anything wrong. But since we trust the authority of the Bible, we look at what the Bible tells us about sin. It says that if we're guilty of one sin, then we're guilty of breaking the entire law. You know, whether that's the Ten Commandments or whether that's the hundreds of commandments, it says, break one, you've broken it all. Yeah. And that seems pretty harsh. You say, why would that be? And when we think about it, the law was perfect for what it was intended. So if we break one part of it, if there's one imperfection, then that destroys the whole thing. And chances are good. Then if we're honest with ourselves, we'll be able to say we've broken way more than just one of the commandments. So not like we had one sin. It's like, you know, do over, a mulligan. No, there's a whole bunch of them. So then we have to ask, what was the purpose of the law if nobody could fulfill it on their own? Mm -hmm. It was to show that we can't fulfill it. We don't have the strength to do it. You know, we can never be fully righteous through our own strength or on our own. And that's why we need the sinless Savior, if I can say it, the sinless Savior. When he died in our place, he fulfilled the law, the whole thing. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And by that, he meant the complete law was totally 100% fulfilled. Yeah. It's just amazing. That is good. So in that sense, what you've just said makes me think of a litmus test. And the law for us becomes, in a sense, a litmus test. And we come up short every time. If we've broken just one of those things, then the test says, no, if you get one wrong, you failed. (laughs) It's pass-fail. And we fail every time, which points out the fact that we need somebody who can pass the test. And that's what points us to what Christ did for us on the cross. I was listening to uh, old from the mid-70s Billy Graham sermon this morning, and he was talking about Christ's experience on the cross. Hmm. Christ had never known the disfellowship of having sinned and broken that relationship with the Father. And yet, on that cross, he took everybody's sin all at once. I mean, 
to not know sin in any way whatsoever, and then to take the sin of billions of people on himself to fulfill the law is mind-boggling. It's almost incomprehensible. Yeah, no kidding. Unimaginable. I had an illustration that popped into my mind thinking about how he fulfilled the law, because people say, okay, well, Christ was the fulfillment of the law. And in one sense, he did away with the law, but he didn't do away with it like destroying it. He did away with it by fulfilling it. And I think there's a big difference. And I love the illustration, and I've used it before. I've preached it probably a dozen times in the last 10 years, because there are two ways to get rid of an acorn. You can put it on a concrete patio and smash it with a hammer and pulverize it into oblivion so that you don't have an acorn anymore. All you have is little tiny parts of what used to be an acorn, but it's not good for anything. Or you can plant the acorn. And if you plant it and it gets enough sunlight and water, all of a sudden it starts to get transformed and it turns into the very thing it was designed to be in the first place. It fulfills its purpose. And I like that illustration because Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the law by doing everything that the law pointed to that was necessary. So now, instead of needing to fulfill all those things in the law, we have Jesus as a relationship. And if we know him, he is helping us not only meet but exceed that law because he indwells within us through his Holy Spirit. So he's the guide who helps take us through this, including all the forgiveness that we need, because I need to be forgiven often, even though I've had the one big forgiveness to start the journey. And he does all that because he has fulfilled the purpose of the law. So the Bible tells us that if we've broken one, we've broken it all. It also tells us that every one of us has sinned. There's nobody who is without sin except for Christ himself. So if we've all sinned, we've broken every command. But the good news is that the Bible also offers a solution. First John is a fabulous book. And in the, the last few verses of the first chapter, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So we look at that and we go, so why does it say that we're cleansed from all unrighteousness? Well, that's because the sacrifice that Jesus made was sufficient. He took all the sin on himself. So it says we've broken it all. Every person has broken it all. He took it all for every person and took it upon himself. And when we acknowledge our need, then he covers our impurity with his all-sufficient grace. Oh, man, that's so good. That's the good news. <laughs> yeah. So if, if we will agree that one sin breaks all and everybody has done it, then we have to think that like in the garden, there were some consequences for the sin that we do personally. Yeah, and these things, I think, like you pointed out several episodes ago, which made sense, that even these consequences in general are sort of arrows pointing to our need to be forgiven because they just continue to point to the fact that there are always consequences of sin. And they become analogies of what happens even in our own lives and in our own attitudes. So some of the general consequences, we've mentioned a few of these, but I'll just whip through some of them because we need to make sure that they're ingrained so that we can see these analogies. 
God pronounced some of these in the earlier parts of the book, especially in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. There was physical death. Physical death. That's the great biggie, and that's the one that Jesus conquered on the cross, of course. But physical death is in our world. We all have to deal with that because of original sin. So that's one of the general consequences. God's preferred intent was actually to have his children live with him forever in the garden. And they wouldn't have had to worry about death. But he cast them out of the garden. They went to the timeout room. (laughs) And they had to get put completely outside all that place that was designed for them. And they were denied access to that tree of life to the point of him establishing an angel, putting an angel in place with a fiery sword to guard the way back in again so they couldn't get there. Childbirth began becoming painful at that point from sin forward. Work became difficult. That sets the stage for Christ to ultimately defeat Satan. All those things point ahead of time. And we even saw in the early part of Genesis that there was one little allusion to that. It was a little bit of a hint that one day, even though the serpent was going to strike at his heel, he was going to crush Satan's head, and he does on the cross. It sets the stage for that, for Christ to completely defeat Satan. So Satan thought he had won when Christ died. He was probably laughing, oh man. What he wasn't prepared for was the empty tomb. We, we talk about that all the time. It's that resurrection that is the turning point in history. Yeah. And Satan had to think, hey, this is good. He's out of the picture. Uh, uh-oh. uh-oh. Not so much anymore. I no. think I'm in real trouble here. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, he must not have heard that wonderful sermon, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Satan was not omniscient like God is, so he didn't see that coming. Well, what else do we see? We see the allowance of evil and hatred, which makes its way in because of the self-centered disobedience from people who have sin at their core. And then we also see some of these physical things in the world, natural disasters. Everything is broken. Paul talked about that. Even the world is groaning. There are broken relationships. There's unbridled selfishness. There's pride. There's arrogance. And I've seen, well, I see it myself. A lot easier to see it in others than it is in ourselves. (laughs) But I've seen people who just refuse to admit that they're wrong, even though they're really quick to point out how everybody else is wrong. And pride and arrogance can do that to us. It leads us to the fact that we can clearly see fault in everybody else, but we just don't see it in ourselves, which leads to sort of a sin blindness. And Jesus even used the term, you're blind to the Pharisees. There are people who would not see that they themselves were sinning at the very time they were doing it, when it was quite obvious to everybody else. So that's one of the things that sin does and that we see as consequences all around us. And so that's kind of a global picture of of what sin has done. Mm -hmm. But when we started this, we said, how does sin affect my life? Let's say that you're a non-believer. You don't have a relationship with Christ. You've never put your trust in him. Mm -hmm. Sin in the life of that person is a given because we have original sin. It's been passed down through all the generations. And since we're born with that sin nature, it often shows up even early in life. I'm going to give a little illustration here. How many parents have come into the kitchen, four-year-old Timmy's on the floor, (laughs) there's an empty cookie wrapper, there are crumbs all over his pajamas, Uh his face is smeared with chocolate. And when you ask him, Who's been eating the cookies? 
What does he say? I don't know. Or he might blame it on his little brother who's only two. He might say it was the dog. He might even have an imaginary friend and say, it was Johnny. So we see there's a natural reaction to being caught sneaking the cookies. And what is it? Denial. And we know that denial is really just a form of lying. Yep. So he's bearing false witness about the cookies, but there's a lie. And it happens early in life. And, and if it wasn't cookies, it could have been something else. But most children will find themselves in that situation. And we see that sin is pretty normal for people who don't have a relationship with Christ. Yeah. But I've also seen that believers will sometimes be confused when non-believers engage in sin. Right. Even though they know that that behavior is ultimately going to be bad for them. But without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is normal. You know, we can't expect someone to head towards true north if they don't have a compass. Right. So if we see partying, carousing, and unfulfilling relationships, all of those are normal when the moral compass is broken. And we often hear the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, that's the definition of a life bound by an evolutionary construct. That's true. There's no other reason to live. Let's, you know, have good food. Let's drink good wine. And let's have a good time because in a few years, we're going to be gone. So that's the normal mindset of someone who isn't a believer. They haven't been confronted with their sin. So until God starts to draw somebody to himself, the concept of sin is meaningless to humanity. In the life of a non-believer, sin is just normal, but it doesn't feel like sin to them until God starts to draw them through the Holy Spirit back to himself. When, he start, when the non-believer starts to say, yeah, I know there's some things that are wrong in my life. It's a question of do they care now or do they still not? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard so many stories of people who said it, it took some catastrophic crisis in their life to become a sort of a wake-up call. And that caused them to have to call out to somebody bigger than themselves because they realized, I'm not really doing myself any favors by doing this. And the harder I try to bring meaning to my life or satisfaction, the worse I feel. And so there is something, even in crises, that God can use to start that process of drawing them to seek him out and to start calling out to him. Uh, I'd like to switch gears just ever so slightly uh, and talk about for a minute how sin plays a different role in the life of a believer as opposed to the non-believer. So we've got the non-believer who doesn't have that relationship yet, but in the role of a believer, that's different because when somebody says, okay, I have now chosen to put you at the center of my life, God. I want you to guide me then we've been set apart as one of his children. We're adopted into his family. Uh, Because God can't look upon sin, he can't even abide in the presence of sin, when we're sinning as a believer, we're blocking out the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's like we've got a blockage, a sin blockage. And so he can't pour his love to us and through us the way he can when we're abiding in him and we're admitting our sin and getting forgiven for it. We have to be able to admit that we need him to continue that forgiveness process through our life. 
So those kinds of sins in the believer's life decreases our ability to have fellowship with other believers because it has this horizontal impact as well. And it really just puts a wet blanket on our witness to other people. It just kills a witness of a believer. When somebody who's looking in at a Christian and they see the Christian living in a way that even they probably know, yeah, I don't think he's supposed to be doing that. I think that's probably really wrong, and yet they're doing it, and they don't seem to feel any compunction about that. They don't see it as wrong, so why should I be any different? It just kills the witness. You know, I've got an example of that. There's a an evangelist who has a huge ministry right now, but he had been a drug addict. But through witness of others, he became a believer, but went right back into the same lifestyle. And he couldn't understand why his other drug addict friends weren't responding to the gospel, but he was right there living with them in the same way. Yeah. And once he figured out that he had to get clean, both physically and spiritually, he was able to step out of that lifestyle and now has a huge ministry. That's good. (laughs) There's something about the Holy Spirit in a believer's life that really should make us feel just wrong. It should make us feel off. I've heard some people say that there's that check in your spirit. It's like somebody that grabs a hold of you and goes, wait a minute, that doesn't feel right. Something about this does not feel right. And that should lead us to repentance again. And so there's the great big capital R repentance, if you want to put it that way, that starts the journey when I say, okay, I'm going to be justified by faith, which is just as if I've never sinned. God covers all of our sins at the time we turn to him for salvation. But then we've got the sanctification process, the one that we talked about that's living all the way through this life until we finally get to be with him in eternity. And that's a lifelong process. And there's a whole bunch of small R repentances that go on there. We don't just say, okay, well, I got covered, so now I'm great. (laughs) We have to constantly have that check in our spirit, lead us to repentance and say, oh, Lord, I sinned again. Doggone it. Yeah, forgive me for that. And he will every single time. And he renews that relationship again. Yeah, and sometimes we just need a real simple definition of what repentance is. And the simplest one is, it's just agreeing with God that what we did was wrong. And you say, it might be the big R repentance, which is, yeah, I've I've sinned, my life is a mess, and I need to step into a relationship with you. Or it might be, as you say, that lifestyle repentance with the little R. So we're turning away from the sin, and at that point we want to work to the point that we don't repeat that sin or repeat the behavior that is sinful that keeps us from the best relationship that we can have with him. Yeah, I like what Paul had talked about, working out his salvation. When you're using that term work, we're not working to earn our salvation. It's already been given to us by faith. It's free. It's a gift. It's grace. But then we work out that salvation by trying to continue to love him back the way we know that we want to, because we know he loves us enough to die in our place. So what happens when somebody goes through that first repentance, the one with the big R? What are some of the things that we see happen in their life at that moment? It's a, a really big deal. And from everybody I've spoken with who has a testimony about it, they say it's a big deal. <laughs> Because it's a complete turnaround from something that they weren't to something that they are now. I mean, they become a new creation in Christ. And there's something, cataclysmic shift, it's a seismic shift in everything about them when they take that first step. So that's the one thing, first thing, is that they become a new creation. Can you think of some other stuff that happens as that first repentance? 
Well, the, the one that, that really stands out to me is we become cleansed of all unrighteousness. Oh, yeah. It's everything past and everything future that we're going to do that isn't right, you know, that breaks that relationship, that is gone. Yeah. I mean, they say our sins are as far as the East is from the West. Um, when I uh, wrote the play No Ordinary Day, the visual that I came up with for our main character was that it flowed out of him and was lost in an ocean that he couldn't see. He was totally clean. And the way the Bible describes it is we are robed in Christ's righteousness, which means the robe that he puts on, we put on. And God no longer sees us as a sinful being. He sees us robed in that righteousness, and therefore we are clean. Oh, that's good. There's a really neat New Testament parable that Jesus uses to describe that sort of robe, too. And it was the one about the banquet that everybody was invited to. And I didn't know the ins and outs of that until just a couple of years ago when I was digging into some of the Jewish background about banquets and weddings and stuff. And at a wedding feast like that, back in that day especially, it would be appropriate for the person who is inviting their friends and family to this big celebration to give them this new robe when they would come. So they would put on a clean new robe that they could use as they were celebrating together. And there were some other people that showed up and they had not been invited. Why were they kicked out or why were they considered bad? And I found out it was because they didn't accept that gift of the new robe, that robe of representing the robe of righteousness. They tried to bring their own robe thinking that their robe was just as good, which means, oh, no, I can do it on my own. I have my own moral compass. Thank you very much. I'm okay. I don't really need you. So when we start to see that robe of righteousness, that parable jumps out and becomes a big deal. And you're right. We get, even though we don't deserve it, we're filthy as rags. <laughs> then all of a sudden we're robed with Christ's righteousness. And that brings to mind the other story where it talks about how at some point He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Ooh. You know, it's, yeah, you're clothed in your robe and it's covered with grease and oil and dirt and smudges and, and stains and all that stuff. And it's not good enough to get into the kingdom. Other things that happen at that first repentance? There's something that is in several contemporary Christian songs. And if you don't understand what it means to become a joint heir with Jesus... That's something that happens, too, and it's a big deal as well, because we are part of his family, then we get to inherit everything Jesus inherits in eternity, because we're part of that same family. So he says, hey, come on in. Everything that's mine is yours. You have access to all this completely restored world that I've made for you, because he's going to do that when he comes to reign forever. And we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I can't even imagine all that that entails, but that's another seismic shift. <laughs> you know, we talk about how you know, we're adopted into his family, and therefore we have equal partnership to everything that the Father owns. Yeah. That, to me, is mind-boggling. Another thing we see, we actually see this in the, the book of Revelation. It says that our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Mm -hmm. Now, I kind of think that, that the writing of that name has already been done because God knows who's going to be there and who's going to live with him forever. But that's a concept that even before the beginning of time, God knew who was going to respond to him. 
And he wrote our names down in that book. And at some point, the last person whose name is in there is going to convert, is going to, to feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and make that confession of faith. And that ushers in a whole new era. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in another episode. But oh, you know, to know that God, before the beginning of time, wrote my name down in that book and said, he's mine. He's going to be with me forever. Yeah, that's amazing. And that comes to fruition at that first repentance. That's very cool. That reminds me of a little thing I remember hearing about a few years ago from uh, a guy who was a chaplain to an NFL football team. And a pastor who was a good friend of this guy was going to go with him to a game. And he was going to go into this VIP booth so he could introduce him to some folks. And they weren't going to let this pastor in because he was a nobody. But this chaplain said, oh, no, it's OK. He's with me. And he showed him his credentials and he goes, OK, come on in. And he said that for me was a picture of what's going to happen to us when we stand before the gates of heaven. Because when it's our time, if we're with Christ, if we have placed our faith in him and we've gotten the big R repentance, which means that we're his child. And then we've been walking with him throughout our life, having all these little tiny R repentances and maintaining that relationship because we're just securely in his grip, then there'd be no reason for me to be able to say, oh, because of all the good things I've done, you should let me in. Uh -uh. It's going to be because Christ puts his arm around me and say, see that robe he's wearing? That's my robe. It's a robe of righteousness. He's with me. You can let him in. And that's what we get to do. We get to become a citizen of heaven forever. That, that's a, an amazing picture and, and one that we're going to play out in, in uh, our next chapter of life. Another thing that happens at that moment is since God knows who we are, deep down, way in places we don't necessarily want to look, but he has for us a work. He bestows on us spiritual gifts. There's a whole bunch of them. We may look into those at some point, but there are things that we need to work in ministry that is effective, and he gives us the things that we need to do that. And in many cases, it's something that we have for a lifetime. You know, those are our big spiritual gifts that uh, we can count on. You know, I have a couple of them, you know, administration and help. And there are other times when a little something is given to us for the moment, you know, a, kind of a temporary little gift. You know, often I've, I've been chatting with someone and in the middle of the conversation, I think, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but it sure sounds good. <laughs> it's consistent with what the Bible says. So I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit is giving me the words to, to tell this person about Christ you know, in this moment. He gives me what I need. It's, uh, you know, probably in conjunction with some of the other gifts some of the big gifts that we have all the time. But that, to me, that's a really good feeling to know that uh, he's there prompting me with words of scripture or words of, of truth about Christ to give that person exactly what they need to understand so that they can come to the point that they have the big R, repentance. No kidding. And it's neat because he's not giving us a purpose without giving us the equipment we need to fulfill that purpose. Right, exactly. <laughs> Those gifts are the equipment. So he equips us to do the things he's called us to do. In fact, we talked a little bit about that in our first six episodes. So if by chance you've come into one of these questions and a question drew you into listening to some of our podcasts, 
if you haven't seen the first six yet, they're really foundational. That first one is really foundational. And then two through six talks about our purposes. One of those first six uh, episodes dives in a little bit more detail to these spiritual gifts that we're talking about. And like Rick said, we could probably go into a, a little mini series just on the gifts themselves because there's a lot to that. But suffice it to say that if you have the great big R repentance and you choose to follow Christ, he has already given you not only a purpose, but he has equipped you with certain spiritual aptitudes, abilities that he's going to be pouring through you so that you can bless other people because of that. Yeah, that's certainly not an exhaustive list of things that happen when we get the, the big R repentance, but it's some pretty big deal stuff. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, as you say, it's it gives us everything we need to move into eternity and also the tools we need to function here on earth. But there are times when we need the little R repentance. We've had the big one. We're a joint heir with Jesus. We're adopted into his family. But something happens and we break that fellowship that we need. So it might be we need to do the little R repentance on a daily basis, an hourly basis, sometimes minute by minute if we're having a bad day. Yeah, no kidding. So, what are some of the things we see that happen with the little R repentance? Yeah, this is some of the stuff that fits into that category that I think Jesus meant when he was saying that he is the vine and we are the branches and we just abide in him because the sap flows through us more freely if we're abiding in him. But it's like you're saying, there's sometimes when I'm just having a bad day, I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, my brain's not put on right. And even though I can have some good fellowship with him and it can even be in his word for a time, and then I get on the freeway and I start driving down the road and somebody drives crazy and I can find that in a split second, I can switch into my selfish behavior and some things can happen that cause me to think, oh, wait a minute, man, doggone it. I need to repent. I need to get back into this fellowship again because I'm out of sorts and I'm out of boundaries. I need to get back into those boundaries again. So I need to keep that ongoing prayer conversation alive so I can regain quickly that fellowship, that relationship that I have that I know is always available, but it's me who has moved. If I start to feel separated, I'm the one who has moved. Yeah, I find the one that gets me is uh, an unholy word will pass my lips. and It's like, boom. You know, the good news is, as soon as that happens, it's like a tap on the shoulder and the Holy Spirit says, are you sure you want to say that? Right. So there, a minute-by-minute minute repentance on that, because I don't want to break that relationship. Because that is so foundational to providing everything I need to be sustained for that day in a manner that um, restores and retains the fellowship that I want to have with the Father. The other thing we see at that point is we're able to re-engage the power of the Holy Spirit. If there's nothing within us that would hinder the power, then it's there and ready to be moving forward all the time. Mm -hmm. So we want to engage the power of the Spirit. And the simplest way to do that is to make sure there's no unholiness. And the way we do that is repent as soon as we're prompted, because he's saying, I want that fellowship too. You know, I want us to be on the same page. So I'm going to nudge you a little bit. I'm going to let you know that something's off. And therefore, all you have to do is recognize it, admit it, agree with me that it's wrong, and we'll be back on track. Yeah. And it's about the fellowship. It's about the relationship. It's not about a checklist because we're not earning anything. 
And it's like with my wife, uh, there are certain things that I've been doing a lot of things for a long time. And then all of a sudden I become aware, oh, I think that really kind of offends her in some way. I need to stop doing that because I want this relationship to be really strong and intact. And so it may not be a big deal, but it's a big deal if it affects our relationship. And I'm not doing that to earn the relationship. We've been married for years. I'm doing it because I want to strengthen the relationship. And that's why we do these things on this ongoing small r repentance, because we want to continue to maintain and strengthen a relationship that goes deeper and deeper. Because this is preparation for eternity. <laughs> so anything else that you can think of that the small r repentance will help us uh, in our relationship with God? I think it kind of, like I said, when we get a sin blockage, that's a funny phrase for it. I don't know why it came out with that. <laughs> Sounds a little strange, but it, it blocks the ability for us to serve or minister to others more effectively, too. I think that's something that I've noticed. And when I've seen people at the churches where I've served, there are some people that start to get this mentality that they get a little bit legalistic, too. And if they see somebody that they think might not be quite up to their standards, it's their attitude that starts to rub off and it becomes a little chafing. It becomes a negative energy in the room. And you can almost tell, I think that person is judging me and it blocks their effectiveness in ministry. Instead of them being able to say, wait a minute, who am I to judge anybody? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm here to serve these other people. I don't care what their life looks like. I need to display Jesus to them. And when we can get back to that fellowship with Christ, as we're living him out to others, then we don't have those blockages, those hindrances, those impediments to serving others freely and just loving other people the way Christ would love us. Now, there's another difficult passage in the New Testament, and it's one that's caused people to really question the whole process of sin and forgiveness and all of that. And it's the one that talks about the unpardonable sin. Oh yeah. Let's take a quick look at that because that's a that's a big deal because if somebody has committed an unpardonable sin it means that they can't ever enter into a relationship with God. So how do we deal with that passage? That's an important question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh I've actually had a few people, a small number of people fortunately, but a few people actually ask me that. They would say, "I did this terrible thing back when I was such and such an age and I said some awful things." have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I said, I can assure you, no. <laughs> and the reason I can assure you is that you're worried about it. If you had not been worried about it, and if you felt that wrong was right, you couldn't tell the difference between any of that. If you had nothing to do with God and you had no conscience at all and could hurt other people without feeling any kind of remorse or pain, then maybe you had committed the unpardonable sin. But because you're even worried about it shows me that the Holy Spirit is nudging you to want to repent because you felt bad about something that you knew was wrong, and now you can get forgiveness for it. <laughs> so the short answer is no. If you are worried about it, you haven't. <laughs> I think one of the things that a professor of mine used to point out, which was really helpful, is that the context for when Jesus talked about that were the Pharisees. It was a very unique situation for them because Jesus was alive on earth. So he was God incarnate in their presence. They had the Torah, the written word. They had all the prophets looking ahead in time to what that Messiah was going to look like. Then they had the Messiah in person, in their midst. 
and they still refused to see him. Then they saw his miracles, which testified to him. They still refused him. And then they went way over the line. This was when they really blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They attributed his miracles to Satan by saying, the only way you could do those things is because of Beelzebub. And he says, man, you've missed it on all points. So it was their rejection of God completely, including the rejection of God incarnate, that was the unpardonable sin. So we don't have that same kind of thing today because Jesus is not walking around on the earth in the human form like he was then. We have the Holy Spirit at work. So for us, what that means is that as long as we have breath in our lungs and a thought in our mind, we can confess our sin and we can be forgiven. Even if somebody's literally on their deathbed, if they have five minutes of life left in them and they say, oh God, I hope you'll forgive me because I realize that I've done so many things wrong. Please, please, like the thief on the cross, you know, he says, you're uh, doing all these things to this guy and he's done nothing wrong. He, he acknowledged that Jesus was who he says he was. And Jesus says, this guy gets it. So he says to that thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there was some forgiveness that happened, even though it was a deathbed confession or an on-the-cross confession from that guy. So if you're worried about it, just confess that sin that you were concerned about, and it will be forgiven, because there's no way you can out-sin God's grace. It just can't happen. When we get a look at all of the stuff that we've talked about over many weeks, and we keep re-emphasizing the, the same concept that... None of this has to do with the behavior. Right. The behavior is a result of a choice that breaks the fellowship with God. But what's God's perspective on it? He wants the relationship. Yeah. How can the individual human establish and maintain a relationship with his heavenly father? Mm-hmm. And as we do that, as we as we step into it and we work out that salvation, as we work out that relationship, the behaviors that are considered sinful, the things that would get in the way of the relationship start to fall away because we want that relationship to be maintained. We want it to grow. We want to learn more about who he is and what he has for us. So crucial. That's so key. I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick. That's so vital because I've had people ask me point blank, if I continue in this one specific sin, is that going to cause me to go to hell? And I want to, for one thing, I said, I can't answer that in a simple yes or no question because it gets to back to the relationship thing again. The short answer is no. It's no one sin of any of us that causes us to go to hell. And I mean, back in the day, people could have pointed to whatever was the the sin of the moment, the one that was being elevated as being worse than all the other sins. Maybe it was going to a movie. Or dancing. That's right, that was horrible. But whatever that one sin is that we tend to elevate above above others, and with each generation it might be slightly different, it's not about the one individual sin, like you just said. It's about the relationship. And once we're in the relationship, if we're truly trying to abide in Christ, you better be willing to admit that God has access to every room in your house. And like C.S. Lewis had said, you think he's going to do a little remodeling over here and hang up a picture over there and put some wallpaper over there. And instead, he comes in with a wrecking ball and he starts wiping it off the foundation because he's making you into a new creation. 
which means that whatever sin is the big sin in your life that you're concerned about, he's probably going to do something about that. But that's okay, because he's going to be replacing whatever it was that you thought was important with something so much better that when it's gone, you're not even going to miss it. In fact, there'll come a point when you'll look back in your life several years later, and you'll think, why did I think that was so important to me at the time? (laughs) So you're right. It's about the relationship, the relationship, the relationship, the relationship. We can't emphasize it enough. It's highly conceivable that somebody who's come across what we're talking about today has never gone through that big R repentance, Mm. who hasn't really understood how it all works. And it really is is simple. You know, if we break it down, I can break it down into A, B, C, D. If a person will acknowledge what the Bible tells us, which is we're all sinners, we've all broken all the laws, that Jesus died on the cross to take the sin upon himself, mm-hmm. that he died, he was uh, buried and resurrected. Mm-hmm. If we'll believe that, there's our B, believe even with the simple faith of a child, that's what believing is. It's, it's faith that God will do what he said he would do. Then the C part of it is confess. We just talked about that. Confession, repentance, it's admitting that what we've done is wrong. It's broken the fellowship with the, the Father. It's simple. We just turn from it, confess it, agree with him that it's wrong. That's really all that it's about. And we can do that in a simple prayer, and I can model that right now for those who might be feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit that says, yeah, I need this. I need to get that relationship back. So why don't we offer that prayer up? You just say something like this. Heavenly Father, I believe with the best that I can that you love me, that you want a relationship with me, that you sent your son to die for me in my place so that my sins, the ones that I confess now, would be forgiven, that would be taken by him, that I could be clothed in your righteousness, that I would become a citizen of heaven. You've got my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I confess it to you. I know my need. I ask you to come into my life. I ask that Jesus would be not just my Savior today, but the Lord of my life. And I ask it now in Christ's name. Amen. So it's the A, B, and C. The D then becomes declare it. Talk to somebody. Tell them. Because it's important that you nail it down, that it was something that you did because you wanted to, because you needed to. And talking to a church friend, a pastor, somebody, just let them know that you took that step of faith today and nail it down because it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And you want to now move forward in that relationship to live a life fulfilled with what God has for you, not what you have for you. I like that. That's so cool. I remember reading a little book, too, about two people that were going to let them know that they'd made that decision. His name was Stan Telchin. He was a Jewish man who was steeped in Judaism and was shocked when his college daughter came home one weekend and said she had something to tell them. They thought she was pregnant. (laughs) Wasn't pregnancy. She had become a believer in Christ. That was an even bigger cataclysmic thing for them. That'll make an Orthodox Jew's head explode. (laughs) No kidding. And and the whole little book is his story about how he kept trying to prove her wrong. So he started really diving into the scriptures 
And he said he didn't recognize how many of the Old Testament scriptures point to the Messiah. <laughs> so, of course, you could tell where this is going. He finally got to the point where he had to admit it himself. And by the time he started to share that back with his family again, they all said, we've made the same decision. We were just waiting for you to come to that conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> the great story. And then he became a Messianic Jewish uh, rabbi or teacher in a congregation. It's a very cool story. Yeah, it's good to declare it. Tell somebody that you know if you've made that decision. And you know who it is. The Holy Spirit will put it on your heart that, to say, I know this person will be so excited if I tell them that. So just tell them if you've made that they're, decision. They're going to want to celebrate with you because it's a big deal. The angels are partying in heaven right now. That's that's how big a deal it is. Yeah. It did not go unnoticed. No kidding. Yeah, that's so cool. And uh, we hope that word might get back around to us one of these days if some of you all have made that decision, uh, particularly in reference to one of our podcasts in some tiny little way, if the Holy Spirit used a line or two. Uh, we won't take any of the credit for it. All belongs to God. But it will encourage our hearts greatly if you were to let us know that somehow God used one of the things that we said to encourage you in some way. So feel free and do that. Well, Rick, I think this has been a really important time to talk about how sin affects our lives. And uh, I didn't realize how deep we can get into that and how many questions arise out of it until I started pulling together questions from people who have had these experiences and asked me, uh, what about this? What about that? So to be able to compact them into one episode this way, I think is very beneficial. Um, thanks for helping codify it for us. The whole concept of sin is a big deal because it does break that relationship. So our first priority should be either big R repentance or little R repentance because he wants to have that relationship and, and without it, we're nothing. We're going to look forward to some more stuff next time around as well. And uh, for you all, thanks for tuning in as always, our fellow theologians, and we hope you'll tune in next time for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.